Hey everybody, Pastor Matt here. Thank you so much for checking into our podcast at Gospel Fellowship PCA. Hey, what if I told you that there is a solid, biblical, doctrinally faithful, reformed church on a beautiful campus just a stone's throw north of Pittsburgh? Would you be interested? Well, let me tell you a little bit about it. We don't have lasers. We don't have a fog machine. We don't have an American Idol stage, but we do have the sweetest, kindest people in the whole world. We sing psalms and hymns, and we preach the Bible chapter by chapter. We love Jesus, and we're on a mission to share the good news of the gospel with the world. So would you be interested in coming to a church like that? If so, come check us out, Gospel Fellowship PCA in Valencia, Pennsylvania. And feel free to visit our website, gospelfellowshippca.org, and subscribe to our YouTube channel, Gospel Fellowship Presbyterian Church. And now for today's message. Grab our Bibles now. We're going to turn to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 10. We are working through Mark now, section by section. And we are into the 10th chapter. When you find that, let's go ahead and stand up together for the reading of God's Holy Word. Uh, We rise not to be religious, but to honor the fact that God's Word is inspired, inerrant, authoritative, infallible in all that it says. And all that it teaches is right and true. Mark chapter 10, verses 1 to 16. Listen now to the word of our Lord. And he left there and went to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan, and crowds gathered to him again. And again, as was his custom, he taught them. And the Pharisees came up, and in order to test him, they asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? And he answered them, What did Moses command you? And they said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. And Jesus said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh." What therefore God has joined together, let man not separate. Verse 10, And in the house the disciples asked him again about this matter, and he said to them, Whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. And they were bringing children to him that he might touch them, and the disciples rebuked them, but Jesus saw it. And he was indignant, and he said to them, Let the children come to me, and do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And he took them in his arms and blessed them, laying his hands on them. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of our God stands forever. He may be seated. So Psalm 58, uh, 56, 8 rather, says that God saves up all of our tears in a bottle, which is a way of expressing the fact that our God is a merciful God. He is compassionate and he cares about the hurts and the sorrows and the trials that we experience in this life. In fact, God is such a compassionate God that he does not allow even one of our tears to fall to the cruel dirt of the ground, but instead God is there for us. God is there caring for us tenderly, compassionately, and any time his people shed a tear, 
the image of the psalm, Psalm 56, 8, is that God collects that tear and he saves it up, which indicates that for us, that he knows us, that he cares, that he loves us, and that despite the fact that we will shed tears in this life, he will always be there for us to comfort us in our difficulties. And the very topic of marriage and divorce in the scripture today is probably one of those topics that without any doubt has caused some tears to fall even in this very congregation. In fact, because we live in a world post-fall, post-Genesis chapter 3 world, marriage itself, which was designed to be beautiful, designed to be glorious, designed to exalt the relationship between Christ and his church, yet even that good institution that God made has caused us pain, some of us. And we even see that in the Bible, even in the very beginning, the very first marriage between Adam and Eve. No sooner do they sin, but they begin to blame one another for the cause of the fall. And throughout the scriptures, we see that marriage can be difficult. Abraham, for instance, turned away from Sarah, his wife, and turned to the younger, more fertile Hagar, no doubt causing pain and tears in their relationship. And we see this elsewhere in the scriptures. Uh, Ezekiel was a prophet who became a widower when his wife died. And Bathsheba and Uriah, the soldier, had what appears to be a good marriage until the young, handsome, powerful King David intervened and destroyed what was left of that marriage. And so I have no doubt, I have no doubt that there are some here today that have experienced trials and difficulties in their marriage today, maybe even right now. And the very fact that I turned to this passage, Mark 10, and read through a passage on divorce may be very painful for you. I recognize that, but if that's you this morning, let me just say that we have a God who collects our tears in a bottle because He loves us. And last week, if you were here, uh, we preached on hell from the end of Mark chapter 9. And I thought to myself as a pastor, thank goodness we're done with hell. We can move on, perhaps, to more joyful and glorious things. And I turned my Bible over to Mark chapter 10, and I saw divorce, and I thought to myself, oh my goodness, here we go again, another difficult passage. And I would just simply say, as we get into the text this morning, I would never use this kind of a passage as, as, a, as a weapon in a particular situation. I would I'd never aim a sermon directly at somebody's situation like that, but this is the this is the strength of expository preaching, of simply moving through the text one paragraph at a time because it forces us to deal with those texts that would be ordinarily just easier to skip over and move on to something perhaps more positive. But we'll deal with it today. We'll deal with it, and we'll deal with it faithfully. And what I'd like to do this morning is simply walk through this text with you one or two verses at a time and then I'm going to make one big application at the end. All right, so Bibles are open, and we're looking at uh, Mark chapter 10. Let's start off in verse 2, and notice this carefully laid trap by the Pharisees. It says, The Pharisees came up, and in order to test him, asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? So this isn't some particular uh, situation that the Pharisees are addressing here. This is a trap. We all see that. And this is not the first time that the Pharisees have attempted to trap Jesus in order to test him. Throughout the Gospels, we see various occasions where the Pharisees come up and they ask what we might call today a gotcha question. What do you think about this? Stick a microphone in his face and try to get Jesus to make a misstep in order to divide the crowd that is following after Jesus. 
And so you can easily see where this would be a difficult question for Jesus to answer. Are you in favor of divorce or not? What do you say? Put a microphone in his face. If Jesus says, yes, I permit divorce, then what do the Pharisees do? They immediately point back and they say, aha, here are you challenging the beauty of the very institution that God himself created. You see that? But, on the other hand, if Jesus says, no, I don't permit divorce, then instead of charging Jesus with irreverence towards God, they charge him with a lack of compassion towards a man because we can all easily come up with 10,000 situations in which it would seem to be compassionate to offer divorce as a way out. And so if Jesus says no, they charge him with lack of compassion. And in fact, it's even more tricky than that because one of the things that the scholars teach us when we dig into this topic is that the rabbis were actually quite divided on this matter themselves. And there were really three schools of thought on the topic of divorce, three different teachers amongst the rabbis. One was called Shammai. Shammai taught that divorce was almost never permissible except in the very, very narrow instance of marital adultery or unfaithfulness. That was one school of thought, almost like a political party. There's another school of thought, the school of Hallel, and Hallel taught that divorce is almost always permissible for most reasons. Very tolerant view of divorce. And then there was an even more open position, the position of a rabbi called Akiba, who taught that divorce is always permissible for any and all reasons, even if the husband simply found a woman who was younger or more attractive or more fertile herself. Akiba permitted divorce for all reasons. And so you can see why this is a setup for Jesus, because whichever answer he gives, he's going to align himself with one of the three parties, as it were, and therefore Jesus will alienate himself from the other two. You see how the trick question works? And we have questions like this in our society today. If I were to ask you, if I were to stick a microphone in your face, face and say, what do you think about immigration, yes or no? Like, whoa, that's a complicated question, right? But whatever answer you give, you're probably going to fall in line with one of the two parties and therefore the other party will be mad at you. And that's exactly what they're trying to do to Jesus. This, this question is not drawn up by compassion or reverence for God. The question is drawn up specifically because it is a controversial, dividing question. Their intention here is to denigrate from Jesus' momentum and his ministry. Okay, So there's the trap. That's the context of the passage. Now, Jesus' response is brilliant. Look at it in verse 3. How does Jesus respond to this? He answered them, what did Moses command you? So Jesus refuses to get sound-bited. You know what that means, right? You get a three-second clip of your answer. That's the one that goes on Twitter all day and night. Jesus will not be sound-bited. In fact, what he does is he asks a question. He says, what did Moses command you? Now, this is brilliant for a number of reasons, one of which is that it's always good to point back to the infallibility of the Scriptures whenever it comes up a controversial question, right? Because at the end of the day, what does it matter what your opinion on a particular topic is or my opinion on a particular topic? The question is, what does God's holy word teach? Now, Jesus is the Son of God, of course. He could answer. 
Jesus says many things that instantly become Scripture because His authority is as the Son of God. You and I don't have that authority, do we? To simply speak Scripture into existence? No. So instead, Jesus gives us an illustration or an example of how to faithfully deal with this kind of a controversial trap question. And Jesus' example is simply this. Ask, what does the Bible say? What does the Bible say? Let's get out our Bibles. Let's deal with particular and specific biblical texts. You want my answer on a controversial topic? My answer is, let's open our Bibles and do Bible study together. That's what Jesus says. And so whatever controversial topic we're talking about, whether it's immigration, whether it's divorce, whether it's homosexuality, whether it's the question of how many genders are real, the Christian's best answer is to simply point back to the authority of Scripture and simply say, what did Moses say? Or John, or Paul, or Jesus, or Mark. We live in a world in which everybody has an opinion. There are literally 8 million opinions, right? And increasingly what we're finding is that we're, th- there's, a, there's a concerted attempt to narrow down the range of opinions to that which is the, quote, acceptable narrative. You see? And so even the social media right now, what they're trying to do is, is narrow down, eliminate voices of dissent so that we can all approximate the one view that is acceptable or tolerable to a modern society. And yet, as Christians, our answers to these questions should be irrespective of what the culture says the answer is. Our answer should come from Scripture. And so Jesus says, I will not be soundbited on this question. Now, what happens next is very interesting because the Pharisees are forced to respond. Jesus asks, essentially, what passage you want to talk about? And they cite one. In fact, if you look at your Bible... Uh, Verse 4, they say, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. Now, that's a very loose paraphrase. It's not an exact scriptural citation, but they're most likely referring to Deuteronomy chapter 24, which is a very difficult passage to interpret, I freely confess. If you want to turn back there, let's just go there for a second. You're going to see instantly how difficult this passage is to deal with. But this is the text that the Pharisees bring up. It's the one text, the only text that I'm aware of in the Old Testament that brings up this so-called certificate of divorce. But the question isn't as clear as the Pharisees might hope it is because in this case, in this text, what's happening here is Moses forbids a man to divorce a woman and send her away for her to get remarried and then for that man to take her back again to himself, the first man. You see? So he divorces her. She goes off, marries somebody else, and what's forbidden in this text is that the first man would take her back as his wife again. I'm not sure exactly that's what the Pharisees meant when they brought up this text, but the point of Deuteronomy 24 is simply this, to make sure that marriage does not become some sort of a revolving door, right, where it's just easy to get in, it's easy to get out. You marry this person, send her away, bring her back into your home. It's like an episode of Friends or something like that where you just kind of exchange lovers and romances. The Bible says, no, that's not how marriage works. And that's not how divorce works either. When Calvin interprets Deuteronomy 24, Calvin says that the reason why this is in the law of God is to protect the woman from being used as a pawn, from being used as a piece of material. 
Don't forget, in the Old Testament world, there were dowries and things like this involved. And so it's easy for a woman to become a commodity that could be exchanged or traded around. And so the Scripture says no. Marriage is an institution that is supposed to be unbreakable. And if you're going to go the route of divorce, that too ought to be somewhat written in stone. And so the Pharisees bring up this question to Jesus. And Jesus addresses this. Look at verse 5. Let's go back to our to our main text here for just a moment. Jesus says, It is because of the hardness of your heart that Moses wrote for you this commandment. Now, the second that this discussion gets biblical, Jesus has now taken the center of the board in the chess match, right? Anybody play chess? If you do play chess, you know that one of the strategies is to control the center of the board. That's how you make sure that things don't happen, that, you know, get out of your game plan. Once we're talking about Scripture, Jesus has his pieces set up in the center of the board. Jesus is now ready to declare the gospel to the people. Jesus is now ready to deal with the central concern of all of this, which is the sinful heart of man. And so Jesus strikes right to the heart. Notice what he says to the Pharisees. He doesn't just blame it on sin in general, but whose sin does he blame it on in verse 5? Because of your hardness of heart, he wrote to you this commandment. Your hardness of heart. Now you say, well, okay, but so what's the deal then? Is divorce permissible or not? Well, to answer that question, we have to think of the law of God in maybe two different ways. Let's set it up like this. All of the laws of the Old Testament scriptures, we could roughly put into two kinds or categories, okay? On the one hand, we have laws in the Old Testament that we might call the idealistic laws. They're idealistic because they're high bar. They're ambitious. Like they set a golden standard. So for instance, commands like, Love the Lord your God with all of your heart and all of your mind and all of your strength. That's a high bar, idealistic command, which in reality, how many of us can actually perform? None of us, right? Commands like love your neighbor as yourself are high bar, idealistic commands. They're real. They're true, but we just, we, we, can't, we can't ever perform that. A command like be holy for the Lord your God is holy is an idealistic command. And who of us can perform that? but they're legitimate, and they're authoritative, and they're inspired. Now, on the other hand, so that's category one, idealistic commands. We might see a different category also in the law that we might call realistic commands. And the realistic commands accept the fact that we live in a post-fall world. They're commands that are there given the fact that humanity has already fallen. See, does this make sense? So like there are commands like, if your ox gores your neighbor, here's what you do to the ox. That's a command that accepts the fact that we live in a fallen, messed up world with natural disasters and all kind of mischief. There's commands like, if a man commits adultery with a woman, here's what you do to both the man and the woman. That's a realistic command because it accepts the fact, it assumes the fact that man is going to fall and that man will commit adultery. And so this divorce certificate concept, what Jesus' point here is, is this kind of a commandment accepts the fact already 
that we live in a post-fall world in which there is great pain and anguish. And so we might put it in principle like this. In a world of hard hearts, there will always be broken hearts. Does that make sense? See that? In a world of sinners, there's always going to be sorrows. In a world of villains, there's always going to be victims. And so Deuteronomy 24 simply accepts the fact that man's heart is hard and he will very often do things that are selfish that ought not to be done. Now, it looks like Jesus is taken aside here, doesn't it? But watch what he does next. In verses 6, 7, 8, and 9, Jesus begins to exalt the institution of marriage to a very high and glorious degree. Look at what he says. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let man not separate. So here what Jesus does is he says, okay, you've got your text, Deuteronomy 24. I've got one I'd like to talk about as well. And what Jesus does here is he goes all the way back to the pre-fall institution of marriage, and Jesus begins to quote from Genesis 1 and Genesis chapter 2, and Jesus exalts and he glorifies the ideal institution of marriage that God himself has made. And notice some of the things that Jesus says specifically about marriage. First of all, that God made them male and female. Therefore, Jesus acknowledges that God is the one who instituted the entire concept of marriage in the first place. This is not a human social construct. This is something that God has ordained for his glory. And notice also that Jesus specifies this as an institution created for the two genders, one male and two female. Well, that's controversial, isn't it? Not really, if we believe our Bibles. And not only that, but then Jesus exalts what is supposed to be the inviolable covenant between the two parties, and the two shall become one flesh. There is a real unity that happens here between the husband and the wife that cannot equal, e, excuse me, easily be broken. And therefore, Jesus concludes, what therefore God has joined together, let man not separate. Now, do you realize, do you recognize how controversial it is to believe that today? Maybe you grew up in the, the 80s or the 90s or the 70s or even the 60s when this was somewhat taken for granted. Today, we live on the very precipice in which as an entire civilization, we are about to take that truth and throw it out. We are literally standing on the edge of a cliff with no parachute and we're about to jump and nobody knows what is going to happen to this society if we do, if we jettison this. Some people will say this is old-fashioned. Some people say this is oppressive. Some people will say this is evidence of the patriarchy. Some people will mock. Some people will scorn. I'll, I'll tell you this. I, I have an opinion on this matter. Um, if we jettison the idea of the family, 
there's probably going to be two replacements for marriage and family. One will be utter chaos. The other will be the state. Those would be the two movements ready to sweep in and replace what we have in marriage and family. By the way, notice, did you notice the interesting juxtaposition here between this text on marriage and this text on children, which comes in verses 13 to 16? Can't be an accident, right? Can't be an accident. So clearly Mark, who's organizing this material, puts this important section about children immediately after this important section about the glory and the beauty of marriage. Now, the entire conversation about divorce is still not over yet because it's not wrapped up. If you go on to verses 10, 11, and 12, what happens is that Jesus has a follow-up conversation with his disciples. Okay, look at this. And in the house, verse 10, the disciples asked him again about this matter. So this conversation with the Pharisees, heated as it probably got for a few moments, did not fully resolve all of the possible questions that the disciples had about marriage and divorce. And you probably have a few as well. And that's because we can come up with 10,000 possibilities in which we might ask, is it legitimate in this case or that case or the other case? And so the disciples have questions about this too. And here's his answer. Now, I wish this was a, I wish this was a little bit, um, let me put it this way. I wish we could ask follow-up questions too, but we don't have that prerogative. But here's what Jesus says. Look at verse 11 and 12. He said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. Now that statement right there has been interpreted in two basic ways. I'll just throw them out here. The first way to interpret this would be the broadest interpretive grid. And it would say simply that Jesus has just forbidden remarriage entirely. And you can see how that could be read that way, right? If you divorce and get remarried, that's adultery. Is that what he says? Just blanket, carte blanche. Some people have interpreted that as an absolute forbiddance on remarriage. Now, I respect many people that hold that opinion, but that's not the opinion of the Westminster Confession of Faith. If you read the Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 24, paragraph 5, it does talk about some cases in which remarriage is permissible. Not all, but some. And so another way to possibly read this text is to say it this way. Now you have to look at the text and ask yourself, what did Jesus intend by this? Whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. Is Jesus saying that the intention of the divorce is in order to marry another? If so, then that is clearly adultery, you see. If there's a a comma there, the Greek doesn't have commas. If there's a comma there, if you divorce your wife, comma, and marry another as a separate action, and then that's adultery, then that that would be the more strict interpretation. But if the point here is that if you divorce your spouse, in order to marry another person, then that would certainly be adultery. I actually have known a situation in which that happened. A pastor of a church that I worked at and a Christian education director, they, they divorced their spouses so that they could marry one another. That is clearly adultery according to this text. Clearly. There's no way around it. If the intention of your divorce is so that you might go on to a different relationship, there's no question about that that is adultery. 
All right, now all that is the introduction to my sermon. I'm ready to preach now. Here's the sermon. There is no doubt in my mind that some people in this room have experienced pain. Some of you are single, you've never been married. Some of you are married and you're quite happy about it. Some of you are married and you're unhappy about it. Some of you are married and you're divorced and you're remarried. And some of you are married, divorced, and remarried, and divorced, and remarried again. And some of you are widows and you've lost the person that you love. And it is great pain in your life. And I would simply say this to you. We have, no matter what position in life you're in right now, this is for everybody in the room, you have a God who loves you and keeps your tears in a bottle. Amen? He cares for you. And no matter what situation you've come through or you've gone out of or you find yourself in today, there is one person who always keeps his vows to you, and that is our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Even if you have been hurt in a tremendous way, even if your marriage has fallen apart, even if you are responsible for that and you know it, you nevertheless, Christian, you have somebody who loves you and who will not break his covenant vows to you. Even if everybody else breaks their promises to you, Jesus will not. His covenant is unbreakable. Think about the marriage vows just for a moment, right? What do we promise when we marry another person? We promise that we will be with that person in sickness and in health. You have a Savior, Christian, who will love you whether you are sick or whether you are healthy, whether your mind breaks down first or your body breaks down first. One of those things is probably going to happen and Jesus is going to love you through it. We have a Savior in Christ who loves us whether we are richer or whether we are poor, whether your business was burned up in the riots last night or whether you are doing better right now economically than you ever have. You have a Savior who loves you and who will keep his promises to you. Your financial status is irrelevant to his love. He will keep his promise to love you for richer or for poor, for better or for worse. We have a Savior who has promised that he will, he will not forsake us. All right, we promise that we will marry a person forsaking all others, but we have a Savior who has promised never to forsake us. We have a Savior who loves us, ready for this, until death do us part. And here's the glory of that. Death does not do us part. From our Savior. He is good and He is faithful and He is loving and He is just, and whatever tears you may have shed in your life, Christ scoops them up in His bottle and He loves us despite it all. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the faithfulness of your Savior Jesus Christ. Lord, we, we pray that we as Christians would exalt the goodness of marriage, uh, whether we find ourselves to be married, divorced, remarried, or single today. Lord, we acknowledge that your plan is good. And Father, help us to live lives of fidelity to you, no matter what station we are in today. Honor those that you've put in our lives in whatever way is best. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Let's stand together for the benediction. Now may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord cause his face to shine upon you and give you his peace in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.
everybody. My name is Rob, and I am a deacon at Gospel Fellowship PCA. I'm also the sound engineer, the camera guy, and the podcast manager. Thank you so much for listening to today's message. Please come visit us in person. Gospel Fellowship is a Bible-believing church just north of Pittsburgh, and you can find us at gospelfellowshippca.org. See you next time.